Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Jasmine Johnson. She is a maternal and fetal medicine fellow at the University of North Carolina. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so glad to be here. Um, like you said, I am a maternal fetal medicine fellow at UNC in Chapel Hill. Um, I did my OBGYN residency at UNC as well, but um, I'm originally from the Midwest. I went to medical school at Indiana University School of Medicine, and um, my family and I are originally from Detroit. So that residency brought us down to the South, and we've really enjoyed it. But my um, research focus has been Black maternal health, specifically disparities related to maternal mortality and um, inequities in treatment, and then most recently, um, preterm birth disparities. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Johnson, you recently presented some work that you've been doing on uh, preterm birth at the Society of Maternal and Fetal Medicine Conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, we've, we've had a decent idea of like what um, preterm birth disparities look like when you compare black and white mothers um, uh, and and those outcomes. So I kind of want to hear uh, from your uh, perspective and from your work, what exactly is the landscape of um, preterm birth disparities? Yeah, so I think that it's been well established in previous studies that um, black women have a higher rate of preterm birth. And so, you know, depending on what study you look at, it could be double that if you look at non-Hispanic white women compared to black women um, and anywhere up to like five times. And so this is spontaneous preterm birth, just want to clarify. Spontaneous and medically indicated or what we refer to as like iatrogenic, basically like the doctor deciding that you need to have your baby early. Um, Mm -hmm. When you look at spontaneous and like medically indicated, black women still out exceed other racial groups when it comes to preterm birth um, rates. And so you know, a lot of people have looked at, well, does it have to do with mom's health when she comes into pregnancy? What is it, what happens with moms when they actually get pregnant? And then we've finally started to shift our thinking to look at like environmental things that might be related to preterm birth. So there's like this new, um, I feel like push for research to look at things that have nothing to do with like the black woman and like what what is going on with her that makes her preterm birth rate higher because i think that what's so important to establish is that there is nothing about me as a black woman that is like a problem that's like causing preterm birth so i think that like that's the first thing i like to say when we lay out um these disparities because i think that like historically it's all been about like what's the genetic difference between being black and white that like make black women have these outcomes when Um, now we're seeing different things. So just to kind of go back to the study um, at SMFM, we wanted to look at basically what the most current preterm birth rates could be um, in a population that had high socioeconomic status. And so one of the arguments has been that Black women don't have access to prenatal care or they don't have insurance, so they're not able to get to the doctor soon enough to prevent preterm birth. And so we looked at just women based on birth certificates, just women who had babies that were in a high socioeconomic status group. And we define that ourselves. So if you go look at other studies that have done this, you know, there's no real definition of that, but we decided that it would be women who had greater than 16 years of education. So trying to like get at someone who had at least a college degree, um, had private insurance, and someone who wasn't receiving um, WIC benefits. And so 
we just looked at women in that population. And we have this data set available just using vital statistics or birth certificates, which you might be familiar with. And we were able to look at over 3 million women in this data set. And so um, we narrowed it down, even though the vital statistics has women of all races and ethnicities, we looked at just non-Hispanic black, non-Hispanic white, and women who identified as both non-Hispanic black and white races. And we just wanted to like see what preterm birth rates looked at, looked like amongst those groups. Um, and what we saw is that preterm birth rates are still very disparate between black and white women. And then for women who identified as both mixed black and white race, their preterm birth rate was like right in between the rate of black women and white women only. And then um, when you got to like really, really preterm delivery, so we think about preterm birth as less than 37 weeks of pregnancy. But if you like broke that down even further to less than 34 weeks and less than 28 weeks, which are like the really extremely preterm birth babies, um, black women's preterm birth rate like skyrocketed even more. So this study not only just further underscored preterm birth rates being different among the racial groups, but for like the most preterm babies, which um, we were talking a little bit about before this, the most preterm babies were seeing um, those those being babies born by black women or women of color. Mm. I see. Now, mm -hmm. this makes me think of this study that was done a while ago, um, comparing um, basically black women um, who are um, like native born black women, um, mm -hmm. immigrant black women from um, Africa yeah. uh, and white women. And then subsequently, they looked at daughters of immigrant black women um, from Africa. And they saw that basically with one generation, of living in the United States, um, you, the like immigrant black women basically catch up to uh, native black women in yeah. terms of rates of preterm birth. So I guess, like, what does that tell you or tell us? Well, I think that for me, it tells me that there's something about being in America and the lived experience of women of color in America that has huge implications on their health. Mm -hmm. And so um, yeah, that study is so interesting because, you know, you think about, you think about the things that we think we can modify. So like one of the things that they talk about in America is, you know, that we don't have the best diet or, you know, we have higher rates of obesity and higher rates of, of other things that people in other countries may not have. Um, and it just, I feel like is very telling on the impact of environment, um, and not so much the impact of genetics um, and and how much our environment can shape um, how how we have bad outcomes in our health. And so, you know, one of the other things that people look at is neighborhood like social capital and preterm birth rates. And so um, there are studies that have kind of um, compared like mass incarceration rates in neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. that actually correlates with preterm birth rates. And you think about like very stressful situations and like things that people of color in America probably experience that white people do not. And I'm not even going to say probably experience that white people do not. Um, and I think that it impacts everything from not only our, our children's education and how we access our food and our work, but also I think it impacts our pregnancies and, and when we deliver. Mm -hmm. And so now when it's time to deliver, 
you know, you end up having a baby that's premature. Uh, and mm -hmm. we already know that there are also disparities in terms of like neonatal mortality when you compare mm -hmm. uh, black babies to uh, white babies, even when you, you know, adjust for uh, when they were born. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, I guess, what is the impact, right, of prematurity on families? Because that's not something that's talked about as much, right? We either mm -hmm. talk about um, preterm birth rate or neonatal mortality, um, but the sort of like downstream impact of prematurity doesn't, I, I guess, perhaps it gets a little lost in the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that depending on how early the baby is born, that is a direct, you know, that has direct implications on what the consequences of prematurity are. So mm -hmm. um, when we think about infant mortality between black and white women or black and white babies, you know, like I said before, black babies are being born at earlier gestational ages. And so when you were born, you know, before 30, let's just say 28 weeks, 28 weeks and before, um, your risk of of dying is significantly higher than if you were born even at 34 weeks and mm -hmm. the risks of prematurity you know there are the risks that are immediately during delivery so those are things like um the risk of not getting enough oxygen because the baby just can't breathe on their own so a lot of mm -hmm. babies that are born very early might need a breathing tube um, and may need that for quite some time and when babies have been on oxygen or having a breathing tube in, they actually can have damage to their lungs. So their mm -hmm. lungs don't develop like normal babies. And some babies have to be on oxygen for the rest of their lives because they get like lung scarring from that. Um, there's also the risk of bleeding in the brain just because the blood vessels in the brain aren't mature enough to kind of stabilize when a baby's born very early. And so preterm babies are at a higher risk of something called cerebral palsy, um, which can be something that means that they are just aren't able to have motor function normally they aren't able to walk on their own in the most severe forms or they might not um they're not able to control their bowel or bladder function and these are things that the family not only has to deal with as they're developing um early on but just um you know into like their adolescent and adulthood life these are things that we don't think about as doctors when we're delivering these early babies that this is something their family is going to have to deal with forever. Um, and then also just the differences in neurodevelopmental delay. So some babies are born early and, and you can never tell it years later, but some babies have a hard time with learning and um, their cognitive development is different. And so anytime you have one group that is impacted more than an, another with preterm birth, that means that they also are disproportionately impacted by these things too. And the chronic conditions that their children and the families are going to have to manage forever, which can have a huge um, financial income or financial impact because you think about all of the specialists that babies have to see and support um, and for families that are the most disadvantaged of resources that can be the difference between you know having stable housing and getting their child what they need um, and and we shouldn't lose sight of that when we're talking to our patients yeah that was so the financial impact was going to be um, like, you know, the, the next question I ask you about, right? Yeah. Like I think about if a baby has to stay in the NICU, um, you know, for a certain period of time, and you already mentioned that, uh, black women who have spontaneous preterm birth are more likely to have them, uh, to, to have like very early preterm birth mm -hmm. versus, um, like a, I don't know, 
35 to 36 yeah. and 7. Um, so, um, you know, I was just thinking like the cost of a NICU stay, right? Like if you had a baby at like 28 weeks um, versus. Oh, it, it could be millions of dollars. Yeah, it could be millions of dollars. And one of my attendings tells a story where she took care of um, like another physician who had a preterm labor and delivery and that baby had to stay in the NICU. And this family was like a two physician household and it took them 10 years to pay off their NICU bill. Wow. And Yeah. And so just to put that perspective in for you and like those of us that like, you know, haven't had a preterm baby and probably couldn't fathom a, a bill that large. Think about like how devastating that is to a family that's um, not for anybody, honestly, for families that have good income and families that don't but obviously right. more devastating for those without. Huh. So now I think about insurance coverage, right? So mm -hmm. something like 50% of, of births in the U.S. are covered by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, and the remainder are covered by uh, like employee-based insurance, right? So I guess yeah. what does coverage look like for Medicaid when you, um, or I guess what does the payment, right, for um like NICU stay and like all the other the like early on costs associated with preterm birth um, compared to uh, like non-Medicaid. Like it, mm -hmm. is it that does Medicaid end up being more generous? I'm curious. I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. So, and this is something that I feel like we don't talk enough about in like medical school and even residency mm -hmm. um, and why it's so important to vote because Medicaid reimbursement compared to private insurance is like pennies on the dollar. So, so when, when someone has Medicaid coverage, even like in pregnancy, cause you know, I, I see patients in their prenatal care. When you compare a woman with private insurance, for example, I don't know, we'll just throw out there blue cross blue shield versus like Medicaid, um, the reimbursement, what doctors and hospitals get for the same type of care is significantly lower for Medicaid patients. So when you think about hospitals trying to stay open in rural environments where they only have patients that may have Medicaid, this is why maternity wards across the United States are closing down because they just can't support the services they provide um, just on patients that might not have insurance or have um, Medicaid insurance. I see. So then... So I, so I gather, right, that Medicaid doesn't reimburse as well, but from mm -hmm. the patient's perspective, mm -hmm. what, uh, I guess, like, what are patients expected to pay, you know, or to contribute, I guess, right? Like, so, especially for birth, like, typically, well, I, actually, I don't even know, like, how much is your, your expected, like, copay or contribution mm -hmm. when you like give birth like we don't learn this in med school yeah it just it just depends it really just depends on the type of coverage you have so with our medicaid patients um you know there are a lot of different types of medicaid so even that can vary where some patients may have a copay some do not um and then um, with private insurance the same thing and i i can speak to my own experience because one of the reasons i went into OBGYN and really interested in health disparities is that i had two very different um, pregnancies with my son who I had in college where I actually had Medicaid insurance and delivered in a hospital in, in inner city Detroit. And then my daughter where I had private insurance and delivered in this like super fancy hospital in Indianapolis. And um, from what I can remember from those two experiences, 
Medicaid, there wasn't like payment upfront for me, which thankfully I was a college student, did not have a regular income. So that was something that I really um, couldn't afford to pay additional and for additional insurance. And then um, when I had my daughter and we had private insurance, um, there, there definitely was a copay with each visit. And even leading up until delivery, some, some offices require like a deposit on your delivery. But all of that just kind of has to do with where you deliver, um, who your doctor is, and what your insurance coverage is, which gets at um, access to care. Because I think that if you're someone who can only um, get Medicaid insurance or you're not able to get insurance at all, that really limits sometimes who you can see because there are some private docs that don't even accept Medicaid insurance from their patients. And so, you know, I've had patients come and see me who maybe could not see a doctor for eight weeks and had a baby with a birth defect, but they weren't able to get into anywhere because of the type of insurance they had. And so I think that that perpetuates the disparities we see when people, you know, despite their best efforts, aren't able to get to the doctor just because they just aren't able to to see someone that's going to accept their insurance. So yeah, that was going to be my next question, right? A lot. <laughs> uh, I, you're just like reading my thoughts. Great. Uh, <laughs> a lot of prematurity um, or preterm birth um, can potentially be, I guess, predicted based on um, you know, like something that either is like picked up on ultrasound, you know, like so, if, you know, when. Or at least for the medically, right, the medically um, induced um, mm -hmm. birth, or I guess medically induced or medically indicated preterm birth. Preterm birth, say. yeah. Uh, and so I wonder what the uh, the impact of having access to MFM versus not, mm -hmm. um, I guess, look like, and what does that mean for both uh, like outcomes for mothers who um who end up uh delivering you know earlier and also for the babies yeah so you know unfortunately preterm birth is spontaneous preterm birth at least is something that we're still like spending millions of dollars on researching because we we are not great at predicting it we're right. great at we're great at picking out women who might be at a higher risk for it and you're absolutely right oops um because of their like ultrasound findings, if they have a short cervix, or if they had a history of preterm birth, you know, that significantly raises your risk. But for medically indicated, so we're thinking about women with like high blood pressure in pregnancy, or if their baby has um, something going on and they have to be delivered early, or um, I don't know, any mom that comes into pregnancy with a high risk condition, that then we're thinking, okay, she might need to have her baby earlier. Right. It definitely, definitely, Right, exactly. It definitely um, would be beneficial for her to have a maternal fetal medicine doctor involved in her care. That being said, there are a lot of um, general OBGYN doctors in situations where there isn't access to maternal fetal medicine. And, and so they are charged with taking care of women who are high risk, even if, you know, that's not their first choice. And so I would say, the big thing for lowering these disparities is making sure that all physicians are up to date on like evidence-based care 
if you aren't able to get your patient to a maternal fetal medicine doctor to see them face to face, having access to someone by like telemedicine, which we're doing a lot right now in, mm -hmm. in the COVID times um, and like e-consultation. And then also knowing like where your closest centers are, because even like in North Carolina, we're in an area where there are a decent amount of great centers. But if you just go, you know, two hours outside of Chapel Hill, we have women who live, you know, in basically what we call a maternity care desert where there's no hospital that has obstetric services. There are no physicians that feel comfortable taking care of them. And so um, it's really a dilemma for women in that they're not able to find a place close to home to get safe care. And so there are a lot of things that kind of contribute to the disparity. Um, and I think one of them is like access and some of that has to do with like policy and hospitals not being able to stay open. And then the other one I think is physician, physician disparities and like access to physicians that are competent um, and also physicians being accountable to like knowing their stuff so that when an emergency happens, whether it has to do with like, a maternal fetal medicine issue or not, such as like hemorrhage or high blood pressure in pregnancy, those are things we should all be comfortable managing because those are the reasons, the top two reasons why women die in mm -hmm. childbirth. And, and so that doesn't necessarily have to be a maternal fetal medicine doctor's job to manage that. I think we all as physicians should be accountable to that. Um, and then, you know, patient level factors, which I feel like we shouldn't put the burden on patients to lower disparities, but there are things that we can do to help our patients be as healthy as possible in their pregnancies. And some of that also goes back to policy because pregnancy is this short amount of time where we have women as a captive audience to help do as much as we can to get them healthy, but really like the money is in getting them back to the doctor after their pregnancy and making sure that everything that we might have identified that made them high risk in pregnancy, we take care of in between this pregnancy and the next one. So there are a lot of ways to attack the problem. Um, and it's a really complex issue, but I think we can do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned telemedicine, right? So right mm -hmm. now there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I am curious, I mean, some people have been kind of talking about this a little bit, how COVID-19 and the surge for um, the surge of telemedicine might contribute to, or at least exacerbate existing disparities mm -hmm. in um, and the pregnancy outcomes and birth outcomes. Yeah. Um, so because this is like something that I feel like everybody's experiencing for the first time with like using telemedicine to this degree, we are kind of learning as we go. And actually a group of us at UNC are looking at our patients to make sure that we're identifying like, is telemedicine safe for everybody? Is it something that's like making disparities worse or could it potentially make um, make things better. And so mm -hmm. I think that like, there are, there are women that we're reaching that we probably didn't reach before thanks to mm -hmm. telemedicine. But then I think for our patients that like don't have reliable internet may not have reliable cell phone service. I worry that we're missing them. And so I think that these are great questions to have. And we definitely need to have these in mind as we roll out all these new ways to, to give care. So I don't have an answer for you, but we're doing the research to hopefully answer those questions now. Mm -hmm. um, because there's definitely a population that we could be not, not getting to because of this. Yeah, that makes me think of the young woman who um, died 
in the middle of labor in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, maybe last week or the week prior, and she had, yeah. I think she had been labeled high risk like in February and was like due to uh, yeah. give birth in April. Uh, but then most of her visits ended up being, you know, tele. I saw that telemedicine. Yeah. yeah. And and so you know, I can't speak to every practice. Right. I know that we have really thoughtful conversations in our division about what's considered appropriate for a televisit versus what should we bring our patients in person for. And so anytime you have a patient that may need lab work, or again, has a high risk condition that needs more than just like us seeing each other on the screen, I think that's when our expertise needs to kick in and we need to make sure that we're, we're not just, you know, having tunnel vision about COVID because obviously we want to keep everybody safe and that's why we're doing this, but we don't want to miss the things that we would normally do if COVID wasn't an issue. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I know it's like devastating to hear stories like that. And it breaks my heart that these are still the stories we're hearing. Um, but I definitely, it's something on our radar and, um, we don't want to do harm in trying to like keep everybody safe from COVID. We don't want to do harm and not do the things that we should be doing because of that. Right. Right. Um, and, and related to that, um, for like, for instance, the element of having someone with you when, mm-hmm. uh, when you are uh, in labor and giving birth, it's something that's also come up related to COVID, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like trying to reduce transmission and like PPE, Use and yeah. initially, New York hospitals had said, uh, "You got to give birth alone." Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and some ethicists um, wrote um, this, like, sort of like white paper about um, the ethics of like allowing like a partner or a doula during labor and delivery. Um, and then, like one of the arguments, or like, like one of the points I was raised was like, "Well, yeah, like giving birth alone sucks, and we like support, um, you know, like safety and whatnot, and like." you know, women's ability to have a support partner during birth. Mm-hmm. But like people are also dying alone right now, which like make me kind of cringe. Um, and I'm curious, I guess, like what the implications would be, right? Like I, we know that, for instance, like having someone with you, like an advocate when you're, uh, when you're in labor or when you're delivering, it's like especially crucial for Black women, for women who are high risk. Like we think about yeah. this Kara Johnson and her husband sort of like ringing their alarm and yet still yeah. that not being uh, enough. Like what are the implications for such decisions being made? Well, that is a loaded question. And <laughs> I feel like it is a discussion that hospital systems everywhere are having. Um, you know, one of the things that we have identified as being um, being on the solution side of the black maternal um, black maternal mortality fight is having labor support and having someone that can advocate for you. And so, um, like Dr. Joya Career Perry has also pointed out that you know this no visitor policy disproportionately affects women of color because again, like if we don't have someone to advocate for ourselves, we're already at a disadvantage where studies have proven that like black women aren't listened to when they are talking about things that are wrong, their pain, you know, if they're having a complication. And we've seen that over and over again in the news and the devastating headlines. And so I think that obviously having your partner with you at 
the birth of your baby is really important and it can be this like it's a life-changing event and we don't want to to take that lightly and I think that as we're trying to figure out the safest things to do in the time of COVID it really has been um, important to obviously have these conversations with your patients up front and hear what their biggest concerns are because I think that one of the things that we probably didn't do right in the beginning are these like blanket policies without really looking at like who it impacted the most, um, who maybe was going to get left out when we put that policy in place. And then also like, what do our patients want? And so um, I have, I feel like at, at our hospital, we've, we've done the best we can to at least have conversations before patients got to labor and delivery about like what their birth experience is going to be like in this, in this crazy time that we're living in. Um, And we didn't do any like no partner laboring with you policies. But I think that if, if our administration felt like that was the safest thing that needed to happen, I feel like people would be very thoughtful about that before they made that blanket statement. but I, pre- I don't have the best answer for you. Um, I think that it, it has been refreshing to see that some concessions have been made for, for like families at end of life. Um, and that's, those are times when at our hospital, you can have a visitor with you and obviously like pediatric patients. But I think that we need to like make sure that we keep our patients like individual situation um, in mind before we just say that like one policy applies to everybody. Right, right, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I know you felt like that wasn't a, like an easy question to answer, but I yeah. appreciate the nuance that <laughs> came from that. Yeah, a lot of things in medicine are nuanced, which I'm sure you know. Yes, there's there's yeah. not always a straightforward like you know A through yeah. D multiple choice type question. Yeah. And I think that like, that goes back to like the relationship you have with your doctor and feeling comfortable to like voice these, these concerns with them. Because I think that the worst thing that we can do as physicians is to hear a patient say that they're concerned about something and then just kind of brush it off. And, mm-hmm. and even though everybody's dealing with these crazy restrictions with COVID and we're doing the best we can to keep everybody safe, I think my patient should still be able to vocalize to me that like, she's really upset and she's concerned about her labor because of all these changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's part of like the physician patient relationship. And, and one of the things that I've read with a lot of the like initial crackdown in New York was that a lot of women were then leaving New York and like showing up in hospitals in other places that they didn't get their care. Yeah. In Connecticut and having their babies there. And that also has, implications too because like if you are a high-risk patient and you're showing up in a hospital that has none of your records they're not familiar with your story that also can make things higher risk um if you think about just like having everything you need to be prepared um to take care of high-risk patients and so i just i hope that more conversations are being had between like patients and and doctors and coming up with a plan that everyone feels comfortable and safe with Mm-hmm. And so for um, those births that are, uh, those pregnancies and births that are sort of um, less likely to be um, of high risk, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's been a little bit more of a conversation around out-of-hospital births, mm-hmm. right? So um, for mothers whom we don't anticipate are going to have an issue um, that may, I don't know, require a cesarean delivery, um, sure. thinking about an alternative setting 
to keep them safe, but I guess close enough to hospital. Um, what is your take on that as, you know, as yeah. an MFM fellow? So um, as a doctor that delivers babies, I know that like, you can't always predict when a C-section needs to happen either. And um, for women who are choosing to deliver outside of the hospital, we still, we still do not um, recommend like home births. We recommend delivering with someone who is a, a licensed provider, whether that's a midwife, um, family medicine physician, OBGYN physician. And there are birth centers. We have one at UNC that is outside of the hospital, but we mm -hmm. have a great working relationship with them. And, you know, if an emergency happened, they are minutes away from getting to us. Um, mm -hmm. and, and for some women, minutes is all you have um, for your life, for the life of your baby. And so I, we were very concerned that after all of these restrictions, people were going to like stay home and deliver at home. We absolutely do not recommend that. And we, we think that, you know, even if you decide a hospital birth is not what you desire having a, a licensed um, physician or someone involved in your care and your delivery and overseeing that and being close to a center where you can have an emergency C-section if necessary. That makes sense. Yeah. So birthing centers is are definitely like a, an approach that could be scalable, especially in this yeah. moment. Absolutely. And and I think that there are different types of midwives and different types of birth centers and birthing centers. And so just making sure that you do your research and like our birth center, for example, the medical director is a, a family medicine physician and they are closely involved with the midwives that manage labor there. Um, and everything is still evidence-based and very safe um, within the realm of the birth center. And there is a strict protocol in place to get women to labor and delivery if they need to be there. And so I think that just making sure that you're at a center like that is the safest thing. Got it. That makes sense. Um, well, Dr. Johnson, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing um, your experience as well as your knowledge with us. Um, really appreciate it, uh, especially in these crazy and busy times. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This was great. It was my pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.